Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Mi gente, what's good, what's good? It's your girl, Odalis Jasmine, and y'all are listening to Hello Latino. Today I'm talking to a powerful, powerful storyteller, actor, filmmaker, podcast host, speaker, Christopher Rivas. He is the author and podcast host behind Brown Enough and the creator of The Real James Bond, dot, 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 was Dominican, which you can also listen to on his podcast, Ruby Rosa. In this episode, we talk about Christopher's story, his love story with brownness and how that came about, and briefly discuss his viral New York Times article, I Broke Up With Her Because She's White. I don't want to give away all the cheesemits, so let's get straight into the conversation. Christopher, I am just so honored that you're on this platform, that you're on the podcast with me, and that we're about to have a whole little cheesemit session. Um, I've been a big fan of yours for a minute before you even came into LinkedIn and LinkedIn really put you on the map for a lot of people. And I really got engrossed in your content and your book and your podcast. And just want to say thank you for creating these beautiful stories and excited that you're here. Well, thank you. I'm, ha- I'm hyped to be here. How did you, I thought we connected through, through LinkedIn. How did you, uh, what did you hear before LinkedIn? So this is so funny. I really heard about you uh, before, like at LinkedIn. But before that, I have a friend that I just interviewed on the podcast. His name is Joel Duran. He had posted about Rubirosa at your podcast about his content. He's Dominican. So he was like, yes, Dominican representation. He was posting it all over social media. This is way before I even knew you were coming to LinkedIn. And so I started following your podcast and started listening to it. And I'm like, I was in love with the storytelling, but I'll be honest, I was not listening to every episode. I just listened to the first one. I was like, man, uh, he, has, <laughs> he has a powerful way of telling stories. And then I saw you at LinkedIn and just the way you spoke and the way you carried yourself and just the stories you were telling, so much of it was resonating with me that I'm like, let me actually go on the podcast and like listen to this whole series. And I was hooked, um, binged the whole thing in like two weeks. So it's, it's beautiful, beautiful, I'm beautiful. Grateful. Thank you. So thank shout you. out to Joel. He's shout the out to your friend, yeah. Him. Yeah. He actually saw you at a, he's from New York. He went to Brooklyn, I think, to go see you live. And he has a video of you that he posted on Instagram where he was like, he said something and he, you were like, are you from Queens? And he's like, nah, I'm from Brooklyn. And that was like a moment that he captured on video, but he's, he loves you. He's a big, big fan of you. So. Shout out to him. Connect us after this so I can say hello. Yes, will do. Well, I want to I wanna jump in because I have so many questions. I want to start with just some brief introductions on identity. So I've asked this a million times on the podcast and blows my mind that no one's answered this question the same, but just the beauty of our community, right? But Christopher, how do you identify and why? It feels on the nose, but I identify as a, as a brown man in that brownness, Dominican father, Colombian mother. 
more than that, I identify as a New Yorker. Like that's a big deal to me. Being born and raised in that city, specifically Queens, is a big deal to me. It's a big part of who I am, my makeup, my culture, my flavor, my style. So that's a brown, cisgendered, shitty New Yorker with Dominican <laughs> and Colombian roots. Hey, I think that was such a well thought out answer. Like, have you thought about identity a lot? I feel like with your book and your your podcast, you maybe explored brownness a lot. But when when did you start to feel comfortable in your identity and like really being open? Like, this is exactly who I am because I feel like it's a process sometimes. Oh yeah, I I think I'm still in it. Maybe I'm not. I hope I'm still in it. I think identity should be a should be a fluid thing. I think that's why I embrace this term brownness. Like when something isn't white or black, there's more room to be everything. Like to live in the middle is an exciting place for me. I also think nothing is ever static. And so when I think of fluidity, you know, in, in the gender conversation, I think, oh, how dope that you could be two things. You don't have to be one thing. And we don't even have to be two things. We're a million things. There isn't a box or a term that can contain any of us. This is outside of gender or race or class. Like, I like to imagine that I have the courage to meet my identity on a daily basis and for it to show me who I am and what I am that day. You know, like your identity could also just be like, I'm a courageous person. Why does it have to be fixed to skin color or race or nationality? You know, I'm a courageous person. Today, my identity is softness. One of the things that I loved about your book, your series, is this conversation around the questions you'd ask yourself in these different chapters of your life. Like, huh, am I am I with this person talking about dating, right? Like, am I with this person? What does that mean? Is it because I have consumed this content my whole life that there is this like th- thought about like a white savior, right? Like you you ask yourself these really powerful questions that I feel like hopefully anyone who listens to your platform can ask themselves those questions. And I certainly was listening to it, thinking about my experiences in in navigating some of those things as well. How I, I think that one of the things that I'm curious about is how you've managed to, I think, own brownness, because I there's also this, this idea of I'm Honduran 100%. I grew up in a Honduran household. We had Punta Baleadas, it was very much Honduran household. You grew up in a Colombian and Dominican home, and you already had this idea of you are two things, right? You are bicultural. You're Latino, pero bicultural. And then you also explore this idea of brownness, and you just said, like, you can be two things, and identity is fluid, and you're not just black or white. There's this place in the middle. Where did the Where did the idea of brownness come for you? Like, did you just look in the mirror one day, and you're like, I'm just, I'm, I'm brown. I'm a brown man. Like, when did that become part of your identity? I wish I could say I had it early on. You know, it's, it, it was in, it's in me my whole life. You know, I, I want to return to New York. You know, I want to return to like, not only does my household have Dominican Colombian, you know, it also has the Greek spot down the corner. It has the bagel shop. It has, you know, my French pastry chef godfather who was born in Algeria. You know, it has the Egyptian people upstairs. It has the Momans, the, the, you know, like the Orthodox Jews, the Russians, like, so that's in me as a child, this, this diversity, uh, what it really means before we labeled it DEI. 
But the word brown, I don't actually think entered my life until the Tanahasi Coates moment when I went to see Tanahasi Coates speak at this conference. Not a conference, it was like a library, just this intimate talk. And he was talking about black and white. That's what he does. He talks about race in America. And I raised my hand and I said, you know, well, as a, I did use the word brown, you know, I think as a brown Dominican Colombian kid, you know, a Latino, where does that leave me in the conversation? And he said, not in it. And, and I felt sort of reprimanded and I went home and I couldn't stop thinking about that answer. And I couldn't stop thinking about you. I didn't even know you, but I was thinking about you and, and my people and my community and my building and my block and my family. And I said, we're not in it. That's crazy. Where are we if we're not in it? And so that's when brownness really entered my life in a, in a beautiful, violent, gorgeous, powerful way. Yeah. It's so funny you mentioned that because one of the things that um, my parents, this is some, a narrative that I heard growing up a lot. They were always one to tell me like, you know, this, this is like la tierra de los americanos, la tierra de los hueros. Like this is a, a white man's land. This is basically what they say. And they're like, there's white, there's black, but Latinos were, we're we need to assimilate into this culture. The parents will and- tell you that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They're, they're immigrants and they, they forever feel like this is not their place. This is not their land. They're like, we built a life here, but this is not nuestra tierra. Nuestra tierra está en Honduras. Like that's, that's what I heard growing up. And so I felt very confused because one of the things that I loved about your podcast and this stuck with me was you said you felt like you could be yourself in your home and you had parents who loved you, a family who loved you. And I feel very lucky that I had the same. My parents, although they said these narratives, they always told me I was enough. They always told me I was amazing. They always told me these beautiful things that when I walked out the house, they almost felt like they were not true outside of those doors. And I struggled a lot with identity, with how to own all these parts of me, because in my household, you had to have big hips and curly hair I don't have curly hair. My sisters have beautiful curly hair. But that was a thing for Hondurans, like having big curves, having un trasero, which is what we call like a big booty. And having all of that meant like beauty. And then outside of those doors, I would get judged for having big hips or I would get judged for like being very tall or being very like over-sexualized. Like that would happen to me all the time. And it felt like it wasn't enough. I had to be thinner. I had to be skinny. I had to like not have any types of curves or sasson, you know, like, and then now to see it be a trend, right? With Kardashians coming out and bodies being looking a type of way. And now it's a whole different set of beauty standards that is really confusing for me because I'm like, culturally, with American culture and Honduran culture, it doesn't always mesh. It, it doesn't always feel the same. And how do you become, how do you own these two cultures when you don't feel like you're quite enough of either? Is that something that you also navigated as just a brown man? Yeah, I think everyone under the gaze of whiteness battles this, whether they have language for it or not, which is why I was so shocked and astonished and in love with your parents for actually articulating this is not our land. My parents never said that to me because they were so invested in the the American dream that this was their land. This was the land of opportunity. This is you know, mm. this is the land where you can start a business, where you can pave your way, where my, you know, I didn't go to college, but you can go to college. Like they were, they were, they were plugged into that American dream. And so they didn't have the realization that this was not their land. 
And so I, there's no right or wrong, right? Like your parents didn't do it the right way. Mine didn't do it the right way. It's just like having this awareness and relationship to, you know, whose land is this? I, I think is just an interesting one to sort of meditate and honor and value. So your parents sound dope. But I think everyone deals with that under the gaze of whiteness. Outside of Honduras, outside of Dominican, outside of Guatemalan, like everyone under the gaze of whiteness suffers the same illness, which is the illness of difference, which is the illness of not enough. You know, as my pops would say, carry yourself with the confidence of a mediocre white man. Like, you know, <laughs> that we part. are all under the same under the same, the same umbrella. There's whiteness and there's everything else. We're all trying to meet that thing. But now I, I believe we are in a world, we're in a place where people like you and, you know, artists and we're using our voice to say, oh, we don't have to, we don't have to run their race. We don't have to meet them. I don't have to play into the game of whiteness. That game wasn't designed. For I get to stop. I get to rest and I get to operate from this place. I get to operate from enoughness right here, right now. Oh, I just want to like bolt and italicize that. That's so beautiful. I want to I want to backtrack a little bit, Christopher. Like, tell me about your roots. I feel like so much of our story is rooted in our parents' story, our grandparents' story, and that immigration. Right? How did how did Dominicanos, Colombianos come into this country? How how was Christopher in in Queens being born and like walking around? Like, I want to hear this whole origin story of yours. So walk me through where does that where does that origin story begin? Yeah, so my mom was born in Colombia. Uh, I don't, I think she gets here when she's like somewhere between the ages of like eight to 12. I forget. I should know better. <laughs> she gets here sometime around then straight to Jackson Heights with her mom, which is, you know, the most diverse place on the planet, literally. And my dad, my dad and I were actually born in the same hospital, New York Women's Presbyterian. His mother was a Dominican woman. Uh, Dominican father, but they were divorced. And she immigrated here, had my dad uh, with the idea of the American dream, you know, having a better life in America, which my dad, I think, often resented her for. He spent a lot of time in the Dominican Republic and he saw the difference that my grandma had this great life in the DR. You know, why would she leave that to struggle, you know, in America? And so that's, that's been a battle of his. And we talk about some of that in the Rubidosa podcast and the idea of why struggle in America when you can be among your people and where you're from. But if you're going to be here, you might as well make that dream happen, you know, like that part, yep. do the struggle, do the hustle, which I'm starting to reject, reject on more and more. We don't have to do the hustle. We don't have to do the struggle. We get to if we want to, but we don't have to. We, have, we don't have to prove anything to anyone. And then my parents meet in New York City at a famous men's clothing store called Clappers. It sounds like a strip club, but it was a clothing store. <laughs> my mom, my mom was actually like that one of the head stylists. And my dad came in and he kind of fell in love with her. And then he ended up getting a job there and also being a stylist. And they ended up like, my mom wasn't really into him in that way, but they had the same they started hanging out with the same people. And so they were just in each other's lives. Next thing you know, they're, they're in each other's lives in a more intimate, loving way. My mom gets pregnant at a very young age, at the age of 20. And 
they have a very honest conversation about, you know, what they each want and they decide they want to give their kids everything they never had. And that's what they, that's what they do. I don't, I don't, it's not what they try to do. It's what they do. It's what we had. So that's, that's the origin. Wow. Were you that, were you that kid? Were you the one? No, that's my sister. Um, That's my sister. Okay. My sister and my dad is working a bunch of different jobs. You know, they're living in a studio apartment in Manhattan. Uh, The three of them, they got like a mattress on the floor and they're hustling. And then my dad gets this beautiful opportunity to become the superintendent of his building in Queens. And he takes it, you know, and, and his life really sort of changes course, you know, and they get their own bedroom. Wow. Yeah. I come out three years later. <laughs> I I have to say that your parents sound incredible. And and I literally heard them on your podcast and was thinking like, his parents are so dope. Like they are so open and so vulnerable and so funny and so just just warm. And that's like the word that kept coming to me every time I listened to them and they popped on your podcast. I'm like, they're such warm people. How when did you start asking them questions about where you came from and you know or was that always kind of made clear to you like your parents worked all these jobs to get y'all the life that you want like when did you start asking your parents those questions and having conversations with them i was aware of their hustle early on i mean that's really instilled in me whether for better or for worse i'm not sure you know but like my parents are goal orientated like they're they're driven by the goal you know they there was a time in my life where they each worked two jobs, you know, a nine to five and then a 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. Each of them, you know, me and my sister kind of just like took care of ourselves. And so I know sacrifice, you know, and I know what that job got them was their first home in, in, in Westbury, New York and Long Island. And I remember the phone call, you know, we got a home. They took us to Six Flags. It was this big deal. You know, I know why they put the work in and that has really entered my bloodstream and my DNA. When did I actually start talking to them about it, my identity, brownness, really re-meeting them as people was for, was for the book and the podcast. You know, I, I really knew I had to, I encourage everyone to re-meet their parents as people, not as parents, to just, just meet them. Like they're people who are doing their best, no answers. They had nothing figured out. They weren't trying to hurt you or cause you trauma. <laughs> like they weren't out to get you. You know, they did their best with what they had. And so I got to re-meet them and ask them these questions about identity and assimilation and and home and culture and language. And and it was really beautiful. All the more is they were honest with me. So that's what makes it really nice. Yeah. Well, that's just a live bold and italicize that re-meeting your parents is the most healing thing I've ever done. And I, to this day, say that my best, my best friends are my parents, like being able to see them as human beings and realize, oh my God, my mom's been a mom since she was 19 years old and she's about to be 64. I mean, it's, it's that her whole life has been motherhood. Her whole life has been giving to other people and that's her love language. She wants to give, she wants to serve. And it's it's so it's just so beautiful to to meet your parents and understand who they are, where they come from, how much of that is ingrained in you. I mean, I I was noticing that on your podcast the whole time. And speaking of your podcast, what was the catalyst for starting it? Like where did that urge to create a book 
um, talk about Rubirosa. Like, where did that urge to create come from? I've always had the urge to find my voice. That's like a, there's this, I don't have a kid, but <laughs> there's a parenting strategy that I've always loved and uh, hope to pr- be able to practice with an open heart. And it's from a, something called Vedanta. It's like a spiritual t- tradition out of India, the Vedantic treatise. And it says, a parent's only job is to allow their child to experience their desires safely. And one of my desires has always been to find my voice. And oftentimes that expressed itself through art. It was poetry. It was slam poetry. It was the theater. You know, it was acting. It was playwriting. And I was always looking for what is my voice. Two things that really catapulted that were discovering Ruby Rosa. You know, Porfirio Ruby Rosa, the Dominican man James Bond is based on. I knew I needed to tell his story. And the best way I knew how to do that at the time, many years ago, was to write a play. So I wrote this play about him. Simultaneously, I had had really been moved by the work of James Baldwin and Eldridge Cleaver. And the idea of the personal essay, personal essay changed my life because it was storytelling from a personal point of view. And yet it showed me myself. And, you know, I knew I didn't have the imagination to come up with a giant peach you know, or like a Star Wars, like that's just not how my brain works. Amen to those people. We need them. But I could, I could examine my own life and share it with others as, as honest and best as I could. And so simultaneously, I'm writing some essays that are being published. I wrote this play, a scene from the play got into the New New York Times that sort of blew up. All these sort of book opportunities came from that, the book deal. Simultaneously, someone found out about the play and sent it to Stitcher and they wanted to turn it into a podcast. And and then we turned the book also into a podcast, Brown Enough, which is a weekly show. And so that's sort of the the the, the trail, the trail of creativity. Wow. How do you how do you feel like on a personal level, how do you feel knowing like you built this from a place of like, I wanna tell these, I wanna tell this his story, Rubirosa, I wanna tell his story, but I also wanna pull pieces from my experience and tell my story. Like, how do you feel now seeing and looking back and kind of seeing that trajectory and journey play out? Well, I feel good. (laughs) He's smiling real big, (laughs) y'all. I feel feel good. There's more creating to do and stories to tell, not because I have to, but because I really do want to. I'm trying to sign checks, not just receive them. You know, I keep saying that out loud, like, and the universe will catch up. <laughs> I, I want to sign checks. You know, I want to give others opportunities to tell their stories, to re-meet their heroes, to challenge their heroes, to be artists. I, I mean, I am just meeting you, but I'm just so, like, blown away by your, not just what you've built, but the vulnerability you've shared with the world. I I mean, I have a podcast and I am vulnerable every day on here, but it's still very like, oh, I better spill all the frijoles on my life. And and that's, you know, like sometimes there's a little bit of part of me that's like, do you want to go there? But then it's, I hear more vulnerability and more stories from folks like you and it inspires me and I know a ton of other people to be real, to to own their story, to own these pieces of their experience that I think traditionally for me, I was told like, La ropa sucia se la en casa. Like you don't you don't go out there and you talk about your story, your things, things that are happening in the family or at home. It stays at home. 
but it's so healing and powerful when there's folks like you who are here in the world and telling their story. And one of the things I want to talk about with you, because maybe Valentine's Day just passed, but I want to talk about relationships, putting you on the spot, because I felt very seen when you talked about when you had that episode with, um, I think it was your ex-girlfriend and you were talking about like, how did you feel when you read this piece that I wrote? And first of all, that was the most vulnerable thing that I've like ever heard. I'm like, he had his whole ex-girlfriend on this podcast talking about this moment. I could, I could personally never, but it's such a beautiful thing that you were able to do and that she was able to, to be a part of as well. But how how has it been being really open and vulnerable, like not just about relationships, but about your story, about these moments and experiences that you've had? And what what did it take for you to be open about some of these experiences? Yeah, so I don't want to put myself on a pedestal who, who who deserves a crown is is Christina, right? Like that's, that's a beautiful thing to share space with me in that way and to be honest in that way. And so I want to honor the other person in the room as Absolutely. well, who had that, who had that conversation with me. I had, I have so many thoughts. Uh, the word authenticity <laughs> is now used to sell things. And so I, I, I have a, I have an aversion to anything that is used to sell me something. I also know that social media, you can tell people this and they could be like, I know it's not real life, but it's delusional how easily you get, you fall into the trap that those are those people's lives on, on a daily basis. You know, and so we're surrounded with this idea of sharing that people are sharing themselves, but they're not. And I think anyone who can show up now, here's the thing, you know, we don't have to like, I always say this in storytelling, we share scars, not wounds, right? If you share wounds, we start to worry about you that you haven't, you haven't let the time, you haven't taken the time for that to heal, you know? And as a storyteller, as an artist, as a maker, as a person, we want to know that you are safe so that we can have this experience. But if we're worried about you because of your open wound that you're sharing with us, it doesn't feel so good, you know? And so I want to also just say to myself, like, say out loud to everyone, I share a lot, but it's stuff that I've taken the time to sit with. I've taken the time to look at the wound and let it turn into a scar. You know, I've taken the time to do some of my own healing. And there's still plenty I don't share, like all of us. You know, I'm not some open vessel. And at the same time, for whatever reason, when I was young, when I was a young artist, it was easier for me to be performative vulnerability. Like, it was easier for me to confess to a room full of a thousand people some story that I never, about being arrested or something, and I never told my parents. But they'll find out listening to that story. It was easier for me to do it in that way than it was to do it in a one-to-one. And so that's my work of vulnerability. You know, I can, I can share it with others in this mass way, but it's prepared, prepared vulnerability. You know, as a therapist once told me, I wrote the script. I did it. I'm ready to say it. I prepared myself to say, I'm interested in the vulnerability that you're not prepared for. That takes you by surprise. It shows you who you are, but you didn't have a script for it, you know, and relationships have a wonderful ability to do that. Relationships more than most things have an incredible ability to show you who you are, but you're not prepared to see. One of the things that was really interesting, you were talking about, I mean, I'll call it out. There's colorism in the community a thousand percent. And it's something that I think our generation is kind of shifting 
But I also heard the same narrative in my household of, you know, hay que mejorar la raza, you know? And, and a lot of those things and conversations were around. And one thing where you were saying on your podcast, like, yes, Christopher, that's exactly what happened. Like, when you see these actors or actresses, like the J-Los of the world, that was like the Latina representation, right? You see them marry the white men. You see them, like, falling in love with the white man and the white man brings them love and comforts and opportunity. And that's what I thought I needed to have. Now, mind you, like I grew up in a community that was mostly black and Latino. So we rarely saw the huaritos around. And then I went to a high school where you saw a lot more diversity. And I remember feeling like I was in a movie. Like, oh my God, I just want this quarterback to fall in love with me and like, you know, sweep me off my feet. And I was in this like fairy tale. And from high school to college, I only dated white men. And it was so interesting because my longest relationship in college um, was with a white man. But there was cultural things that we didn't, that we, it just didn't match. And I thought it was just me who went through that. And I never shared it with anybody. And then listening to your podcast was the first time I felt like, what? Someone gets it. Someone's been through this too. And it's like, it was just a moment. And like, I guess I'm trying to say thank you for one, putting that story out there because for a long time I felt very alone in that journey and in that relationship and that, you know, what happened to me in my journey of navigating my own identity. So one, thank you for putting that out there because. I know I'm not the only one who felt seen in that moment, but to also like, I think navigating identity and because of that relationship, I really started to own my Latinidad and own who I was and really love who I was. And I, I think like I encourage everyone to just have a moment of self-reflection and, and love who they are and who they see in the mirror, which takes a lot of work. It took me like still taking me work. Where are you now with that, with that? that journey of, of attraction and dating and, and, and white men and well funny enough I um have only ever dated Latinos now again and it's not because I'm purposely choosing like I want a Latino man I'm only dating Latino men it's because I started to really own who I was and I'm not sacrificing any part of myself for anybody and that's who I've just been attracting just like people who get me who see me and vice versa people who I see and who I get and so it's been interesting, but I've really only dated Latino men since. I don't think it's by choice. I think it's by just attraction, spirituality. I don't know. <laughs> Something deeper, but yeah. I quote my friend in the book around this topic. He's a black man and he said to me, there's something about shared language. And I don't mean Spanish, Spanish, English, English, French, French. I mean bodies of culture have a shared language, right? If it's whiteness and then everything else, bodies of culture have a shared language of, of experience, of moving through the world, of side eyes, of, here we go again. You know, like we, we have a shared cellular language and there is something nice about coming home to someone with whom you share the language that is nonverbal. All that said, I am not out here advocating saying you cannot share that language with someone of a different race or nationality or culture. 
but I will put that shared language on blast. And when you feel it, you know it and you know its value. Absolutely. Where are you with your journey? I'm curious because I heard a lot about what you've navigated. Like, where are you with that journey of just, yeah, attraction and, and dating and relationships? Cause it's, it's very, it's a very beautiful journey that you shared with everyone. Yeah. I have a, I, I mean, I went hard the opposite direction just cause that's what I do. I like treat myself <laughs> like an experiment, you know? And then I, and then I, arrived at a beautiful place where I was like, oh, I've, I've asked the question. To me, asking the question, what am I attracted to? Why? What is desire? Who desires me? Why do I desire them? What is it that's, you know, really asking these questions and then living them out was more important to me than, you know, I needed to just ask and come to these honest answers, right? I needed to turn wounds into scars. Questions to me are more important than answers. You can hopefully live yourself into an answer. And I've arrived at a place now where I'm in a beautiful partnership with a woman who's half Mexican, half white. And, and, and we have these conversations, you know, and she, there was part of her that like both loved and hated that New York Times article. And, you know, like it, it, it brought up conflict and, and we go through it. But, um, but that's, that's where I am. Yeah. Today. Have you received other folks from that New York Times article that have reached out to you about this? Oh, I got like a thousand emails. Yeah, not, not just not just the hate, <laughs> not just the hate and the shade, but like I mean, like people who oh, are no, like, I got a oh. lot of, yeah. Oh I mean, wow, I got yeah. There was you know, hates what you remember because we're animals. You know, like when you walk into the Susan Sontag in a book about hope, she writes, um, "Why do we remember the harmful things? Because we're we're if we're in the jungle and you look into the trees, the trees are beautiful, but you're looking for the tiger, and if you see the tiger." you know that that tiger affects your survival. So all of a sudden, the beautiful trees aren't so beautiful. You remember that, you know, so you remember the harmful, the hate, you know, but there is a way of shifting our our mind to remember the beauty, you know, to hold the beauty, to know we're not in the jungle so much anymore. Sometimes we are. And I had, yeah, I had a lot of people reach out to me. You know, I had, I had people who ended relationships, long relationships that they were in with people, with white people. I had people not end relationships, but thank me for articulating things they haven't been able to articulate. I had uh, a lot of that. Yeah, a lot came to the surface for people. You know, this is definitely a thing that people are still navigating and they don't always have the language. They don't have that shared. They don't know what they're experiencing, how you can love something and miss something all at the same time. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. You should be a storyteller, a podcaster, or something. <laughs> I, I, um, I want to talk a little bit about. I want to backtrack to your story and your journey of growing up in Queens and growing up and and seeing the hustle in your household to then becoming a creator. There's there's like a spot that we're not talking about. What was that journey? Did your parents allow you space to play as a kid? As as the quote that you mentioned, what was that journey of falling in love with? the arts and how did that happen for you yeah so i definitely uh i was i I imagined a lot as a kid i played a lot of i kept myself busy i was very good at that amen to parents who did not stifle that i watched a lot of movies i loved movies i thought movies were so cool i still think they're cool now i know they're cool and they're powerful now i know they have more power than we than we sometimes give them images do but really my life changed 
I saw Peter Pan on Broadway in fifth grade. That was huge. You know, I saw someone flying and like probably so much joy. And I knew I wanted to fly on a stage, like, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a white woman as my pops told me, but still I was going to fly. And then, and then I saw John Leguizamo at the age of 13 do a show called Freak. And that really changed my life because it had the magic of Peter Pan, but with someone who looked like and sounded like me and came from where I came from. You know, and we can say representation matters, but it is an experiential thing. This is the problem with words used to sell things. Like, I can, I can say representation matters. You know, I can write it down so my fingers bleed, but it is an experiential thing. And white people often will never invest in it because they've been experiencing it their whole lives, so they don't understand it. Oh, to to that point, I, I want to quickly pause because I just read something that said it was someone who recently got impacted by a layoff in tech, and he said, "You know, do white people say when they walk into a corporate space, like, oh my God, like how many wh- white people are in here?" Like, do people really say that? Or is it just a Latino thing to go into a space and say like, oh my God, look at all my Latinos like over here. And it reminds me of this. Like, it's it's something that they've probably been around their whole lives, so they don't think about it. But it's certainly always on my mind. Anytime I walk into a space, I'm like, ah, look at all the black and brown people in here. Like, you love to see it. And it's it's just so interesting how many people feel that way. It is an experience. Yeah, white people like never that. do that. <laughs> never, never. Very interesting. I just had to pause and insert that because that just happened yesterday. And it was like a moment where I'm like, oh, I don't think they do that. <laughs> I would love to see, I'd love to see some white person walking. Like, How many white people in here? It's amazing. Yeah, no, that does not happen. Experience, you know, DEI, right? It's an experiential thing. You can talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. But higher-ups will never truly need to take action to invest in it and sign checks for it because they don't know how powerful the experience is because they were born into it. It's not novel to them. Speaking of that, have you, while you're talking about this journey and kind of thinking of your journey of falling in love with the arts, I'm trying to find the connection in my head and maybe you can kind of fill it for me, but the connection between walking in and like being your authentic self, whatever authenticity means to you. It's an overused word. I like, I'm not always a fan of it. But did you really like walk into a room, Christopher, and like owned exactly who you were, your brownness, your curly hair, you know, just how you look? Or did it feel more comfortable to be a character and pretend to be the character? Like I'm trying to kind of, do you see what I'm trying to do? Kind of connect the dots between like showing up as yourself versus showing up as a character. So I was definitely not showing up as myself as as a young person. Like, I did not like my hair. I didn't like my nose. I didn't like my ear. I didn't like my lips. You know, I liked that I could play and pretend. I also loved the feeling of presence. Like, the the Buddhist in me knew that I would like... I was meditating when I was on stage before I knew what meditation was. You know, I, I loved the idea of being present. It was a, it was a credible feeling, but yeah, no, I, I, I didn't, I didn't walk into a room as myself. I mean, fuck, maybe I haven't still, who knows, right? Like, who knows? I think I get closer and closer to it every day with each one of these conversations, with the more I meet myself, with the 
the more I reject the bullshit, the more I hop off, you know, and unplug from whiteness, I get closer and closer to myself. But yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't, I wasn't at that place as a young person, you know, to me, art just was getting me closer to myself. And I have language for this now, but I just knew back then, like something was lit in me, a desire was turned on in me. And my parents never said no to me chasing that desire. Oh, shout out to your parents. How, how do you show up now? Like, wh- how do you own your nose, your ears, your hair, your, your brown? Like, how do you walk into a space and own who Christopher Rivas is? Like this. <laughs> like this, you know, slash, slash yesterday, I went to this very, the last two days, I, I, I've actually spent time in very bougie, ups- like, okay. bougie art <laughs> spaces of like high art, you know, and in the art world. And there were moments where I felt like I shouldn't have worn this. I had this shirt. This shirt was cooler. I should have worn it. You know, like there were moments where I was really, I was letting it influence me and try to make me feel a little less you know than i am and and that is the journey right that is the journey can i be conscious can i catch those moments can i say nope you are enough this is beautiful like you have arrived you are here and there are days where i I never have to you know i'm just i am i am myself there are moments of it there are days of it there are hours of it there are minutes of it i think the goal of of being enough is linking the moments together more and more. You know, how many moments can I link together of enoughness? And I think over time, if we consciously desire that, we will link those moments together more and more. Yeah. You know, someone shared on the podcast before, her name is Jenny del Barrio, that's what she calls herself. She talked about how she had an authenticity crisis at one point because she was like, everybody's talking about authenticity. Like, what, what does authenticity mean? And she talks to her therapist about it. And her therapist tells her sometimes authenticity looks different in different spaces. Sometimes you show more parts of yourself in one space versus another. And all of it is still you, but it's fluid, right? There's this idea of what we show and who we are. Just existing is authenticity. It doesn't mean you have to show up with your big, curly hair every single day if you don't want to you know what i mean it just means being okay showing up with your curly hair or not showing up with your curly hair showing up with my big hoops or not showing up with my big hoops like all of it is who all of it is enough all of it is who we are and i thought that was such a beautiful thing that a therapist would share is just like authenticity looks and feels different and not everyone deserves all the vulnerability and all the all the stories that you have to share sometimes there's different moments and spaces for that I'm curious how that lands with you. Yeah. W- what is that book? How to do nothing. You know, the book, how to do nothing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know who wrote it, but it's called how to do nothing. And she, the author speaks about the dangers kind of of the word authenticity, like, because, because of just that, like, you don't have to, you don't have to give everything to everyone. Like you get to go to work and just be, Oh, Alice LinkedIn, you know, like you get to be that, you know, if you want to be right, that's where it becomes choice. Like it's choice, it's choice, it's choice. You, you get to go to the coffee shop and just, you don't have to, you don't have to spill your tea at the coffee shop. Like you don't have to give everything. You get to just be in this box, you know, 
And I think part of that is true, right? I think it returns to you don't have to, you get to. And to me, with authenticity, I return to this idea that ignorance is bliss until you tasted bliss, and then the rest is just ignorance. Ignorance is bliss until you tasted bliss, and then the rest is just ignorance. I have arrived at a point in my life where I prefer the bliss to the ignorant. You know, I prefer to call people out on their shit. I prefer to not be in spaces where I don't feel comfortable. To me, that is also authenticity. I think it's just like, no one's job here to save the world. But if that's your calling, and for some reason it feels like your job, and it will bring you joy, then that's, then, then take up the mantle. Save us, you know? But it's not your job to be authentic everywhere, to call everyone out on their shit, or to do all the work for white people. But if it is your job and it's your calling, then do it until you don't want to do it anymore. You don't have to. We get to. Mm, Snap, snap, snaps. Christopher, you are so good with your words and it's so beautifully said. I want to close this beautiful conversation out with a brindis that I like to do on the podcast. I'm doing it with my water. I'm rebranding brindis because it doesn't always have to mean drink. Christopher has his cafecito over there. Christopher, I want to give you the space to say what do you want to cheers to and what do you want to manifest for our Latino community? Yeah, I would like to cheers to walking, not even walking. I want to cheers to right here, right now, if you're listening to this in your car, in an elevator, in your bed, while you're washing the dishes. Cheers to enoughness. You are enough right here, right now. Not when you finish the next task, not when you get to your destination, not when you accomplish said goal and said dream, you are enough here and now. And, uh, and that is, that's my cheers. Mm. Salud. Cheers to you, Christopher. Thank you for being here and thank you for uh, all the things that you're given to the world. I have your book right here because I've been obsessed with it and I've been telling everybody about it. So found enough go get your copy and listen to your beautiful podcast it really is changing lives and creating representation in the most intrinsic beautiful way possible and it's done that for me so honestly thank you for everything that you're doing for the community thank you i'm great for you now that you're done listening to this episode go tap into brown enough or and Rubirosa podcast wherever you listen and tap in go buy your copy of brown enough and follow christopher rivas on all platforms and i'll see y'all next week for more cafecito and chisme for all hella latino updates follow hella latino podcast you can also follow me on my personal instagram at ojasmo 4 as and find me on linkedin con muchísimo amor con muchísimo amor tu amiga Nureña. <laughs>